Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Albert's, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. And today we'll be speaking with Carlos Blanton, about his recent biography of Mexican-American intellectual and civil rights pioneer George I. Sanchez. The book is entitled George I. Sanchez, The Long Fight for Mexican-American Integration, and it was published by Yale University Press in 2014. Carlos Blanton is an associate professor of history at Texas A&M University. His research and teaching interests include 20th century U.S. history, Texas history, Latino history, and education history. Professor Blanton's first book, The Strange Career of Bilingual Education in Texas, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2004, was awarded the Texas State Historical Association's Coral Horton Tolis Memorial Prize in 2005. Hello, Carlos, and welcome to New, book, New Books in Latino Studies. DJ, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you again for, for being on, definitely. Well, I was wondering if you could uh, start our, our time today by just uh, telling us a little bit about your background. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, it, this is a dangerous question, because <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing I, can, I enjoy talking about, it's myself. I'm not sound conceited, but it's, uh, uh, I'll try to keep it in check, I promise. All right. uh, my name is Carlos Kevin Blanton. Uh, um, uh, let's see, I'm 44-ish, no, no, that's right, I'm 44, I have to, <laughs> I have to think about that sometimes. Uh, I'm married, I have two kids, I live in College Station, Texas, where, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at uh, Texas A&M University, um, uh, in the history department. Um, I'm a South Texas native, uh, I come from a little town called Freer, Texas, uh, hmm. Not everyone is always familiar where Freer is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but everyone's usually pretty familiar with one of the neighboring towns, which is San Diego, Texas, mm-hmm. close to the San Diego, California. Right. So, Hernandez, San Diego, 1915, right. your dentist movement, all the violence. Uh, so, it's centered kind of in that area. 
Uh, it's Duval County, uh, which is very famous uh, in sort of David Montejano's uh, uh, earlier work, as well as Arnaldo de Leon's earlier work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, my my hometown is three thousand people. It's a rural place. It's kind of an oil <laughs> town. It's got some ranching in it too. Uh, my mother is Tejana. She's, her family's been uh, on ranches down there for a long time, and my father's Anglo. And they're both public school teachers. Neat. And yeah, my, I took senior English and I think sophomore English from my mother. <laughs> so a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of Beowulf. Uh, I, I still remember it all, Mom, if you're listening. Uh, uh, <laughs> and my dad talked social studies in the sixth grade and Texas history in the seventh grade. Neat. Uh, Texas is one of those states that requires its history. Uh, right. Uh, which can be a fascinating thing. It, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and it certainly it was very inspiring for me, both of my parents. Um, so we have teaching in our blood, in our family. Uh, a lot of extended family who are teachers, uh, public school teachers. Uh, my sister uh, teaches in the junior high uh, in my hometown uh, and has taught for many years. Uh, my brother... Uh, my sister Selena, my brother Lucas, is a uh, doctor, a, a medical doctor, you know, one of those real doctors. Um, <laughs> he does yeah. internal medicine and uh, infectious disease, uh, and he works at the medical college in Galveston, the uh, University of Texas Medical Branch. <laughs> so, in a way, you know, we're all kind of in classrooms and teaching and, and, and researching and uh, it's funny how it all sort of turned out, but uh, uh, yeah. So that, that that's my that's my my background. I grew up loving stories, uh, stories from my grandparents, tios, tias, uncles, aunts. Mm-hmm. Any kind of stories I could get my hand on. I was just a little, little kid that loved listening to stories, and uh, I guess it carried over into my when I was in high school. I mean. Uh, Reading history, re- learning about history, it was it was kind of a hobby uh, uh, of mine. Even when I checked out fiction books from the library, they tended to be sort of historical based. I turned that hobby into a major when I was uh, at Texas A and I University. It's now mm. been renamed A and M University Kingsville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took a master's degree at Southwest Texas State, which is now. Texas State University in San Marcos. Both of these schools had changed their names. Uh, it's like I, I leave a school and they, they change the name. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why that happens. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, I chose the master's degree in history in part because, I don't know, I didn't feel ready for law school. I, didn't, right. I wasn't quite sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, getting an MA as opposed to enrolling in a PhD program right away, it it kind of gave me some options. Right. Mm-hmm. Pursue it if I wanted to, or if I could go into public school teaching if I wanted to with a master's degree. I could maybe go to law school. And it was in my first year uh, of the master's program in San Marcos that uh, I realized, I think it was in a, I was TAing for a class with um, uh, Jesus de la Teja, the, the noted Spanish colonial historian uh, mm-hmm. in San Marcos. Uh, wow, I really, I really want to do this for a living. I would love to do this for a living. And um, 
I applied to graduate schools. I went to Rice University. Uh, I work with John Bowles at Rice University, and mm-hmm. he's a tremendous influence for me. So was Alan Madison. Uh, when I was at Rice, Rice was broad-minded enough to realize that uh, where my dissertation was going on bilingual education history, um, they really didn't have anyone in the history department that knew Chicano history or was that familiar with it. Uh, so I was allowed to do an interinstitutional training series of courses with Emilio Zamora when mm-hmm. he was at the University of Houston, right. which is down the road. It's not that far from Rice. And so uh, my my graduate education from Rice, but there's a there's a significant part of me that very informally is uh, a U of H <laughs> graduate education as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I took a job uh, at the Portland State University in their Chicano Latino Studies program in between 99 and 2001 uh, after I graduated from Rice. And then I got the job here at a and in 2001, and I've I've been here ever since. Uh, sometimes living in Houston, but but over the last several years, uh, very happy living in a small college town in College Station. So that's kind of uh, my personal journey. Uh, yeah. Well, nice. Yeah, Thanks I don't for know if that's that. interesting at all. But. I find it interesting personally. My uh, I was raised by public school educators, also both of my parents, and uh, so although mine were um, primarily devoted to primary education, and my dad uh, uh, elementary school administration later on, but uh, I can definitely relate to that experience. And I took a couple, I think I took a couple summer classes with my dad, which I'm. I'm not sure he enjoyed, you know, having his own <laughs> his own rambunctious son in his class, but uh, and then being associated with the school he's a principal at, but but definitely. So nice to hear you came from that good teaching stock, and and it is neat to hear of your your pathway into uh, the professorate at uh, Texas A and M. So thanks yeah, for sharing it, that. It's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard when you, when you're you're in a you're in a school and your parents are teachers. It's uh, a little extra pressure, man. You right, the spotlight's you on you. No, you can't. <laughs> I'm definitely not. I, I'll, I'll say one more quick thing. Um, well, I wasn't too bad of a kid. Um, my dad was the only principal to ever suspend me from school, and I, I guess that's something that doesn't happen. Most people actually get you get suspended more than once, but it was uh, it was my father that actually ended up suspending me from school once for a very minor infraction. But I think too, to kind of set a make an example of his own son, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> wow that's I know tough. right <laughs> so that's dad if you're listening tough. so dad if you're listening thanks yeah. you know. <laughs> see it all worked out right all those tough experiences eventually out eventually it, it came around okay uh, so again thanks for that and um, let's let's talk a little bit let's move on to talking about the book and uh, cause there's, sure. there's plenty to talk about here um, I'm very excited to see this this book when I, I found it earlier this year. Not sure how I missed it last year, but I, I think it's definitely well overdue. So can you tell us a bit uh, about why you decided to write a biography of George I. Sanchez? Sure, absolutely. Um, it, it, it came out of a sort of a, a confluence of factors. I didn't just wake up one day and decide, all right, I'm going to write about George I. Sanchez, and, and, and that's it. I, I, I sometimes wish decisions were easier, <laughs> but when you're living in the moment, you, you, know, you, you 
have all these contradictory pressures. You're trying to make sense out of everything in front of you and everything that you're experiencing. And it's really only in looking backwards that you, that you realize or that I've realized, yeah, there were a lot of things that were pushing me towards the study of George I. Sanchez and writing this biography all the while. And I just, I wasn't aware of them. Mm-hmm. Maybe a little bit later on. But, but to back up a little bit, uh, I wrote this dissertation, uh, 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 which later became my first book, uh, The Strange Career of Bilingual Education in Texas. Uh, the dissertation um, was a little different than the book. Uh, it, was, it was rougher. It was, it, was, it was a little broader. It wasn't really just focused uh, solely on Texas, right? Mm-hmm. But when I was writing it, this guy, George Sanchez, kept butting into the book. Well, it, it was almost like, like I couldn't get him out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd write a chapter on on sort of earlier history where he's got articles that that kind of inform this. Okay, that's fine. I write an art, a chapter on Americanization. I write a chapter on progressive education. I write a chapter on uh, school desegregation and lawsuits. I write a chapter on World War II. I write a chapter on the '60s. Every single one of these chapters. I keep dealing with this historical figure, George mm-hmm. I. Sanchez, and it was it was it was intriguing me, but it was also annoying me because you know, you're trying to make sense of this dissertation, or I am. I'm trying to make sense of this thing, and it helps if you can put people in neat little boxes and categories. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, because when everything is unsure, you need that sort of maybe it's false sense of order to kind of get going. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I noticed is that um, uh, Sanchez was this transgressive force. He had something to say about all these topics. And if I had allowed it, he would have been in every single chapter, probably every few pages, mm-hmm. you know, some article or some book or some idea in a letter he wrote um, that I stumbled across that has some connection with what, I'm, with what I was doing. So I, I grew to be very fascinated with him, and I didn't really think anything of it at the time. So I finished this dissertation. I'm in the process of doing what all junior scholars should do quickly after they graduate, which is you, you, know, you start thinking about how to turn the dissertation into a book. Mm-hmm. You start working on proposals, maybe talking up editors at conferences and, and emailing people and, and getting advice from uh, uh, confidants in the field and allies and friends. And so I'm going through all this, and at the same time, I'm teaching my very first Chicano Studies class at Portland State University. So this is the first week of class. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're on a quarter system, so they start a little bit later than in our semester system here in Texas. So this would be sometime in maybe late September, uh, maybe early October 1st, a couple weeks in class. I'm doing this lecture on sort of the earlier 20th century in Chicago history, and, and I'm, I'm focusing on a few key figures. One of them is George I. Sanchez, and I was doing fine on the lecture, and I got to George I. Sanchez, and, and I ended up talking about George I. Sanchez for the rest of the class. And literally, <laughs> you know, when that, that, it's that sickening feeling as a professor you get when you notice that the students start folding their, closing their <laughs> folders. Right, right. It, 
it's not a loud noise, but it's loud enough. Right. And you get that sense. Sends a message, that, right. Yeah, you, you get woken from this reverie, right? You're, you're just going and going, and things are flowing, and then you look up and you realize, oh, I'm out of time. Everyone's getting ready to go. So it's like my first week or two of class, and mm-hmm. I'm already running like almost a whole lecture behind. And I'm mad. I'm pissed. That's why I am. I'm really <laughs> upset at myself, kicking myself. And so I apologize to the class. Typical rookie, first, first-time professor mistake. Right. Start out of the gate, just apologizing <laughs> from the beginning. Right? They can smell blood right from then on. <laughs> That's right. So I start apologizing. And, you know, the, the kids at Portland State are wonderful kids. It's just they're very relaxed, very cosmopolitan, and it, it was cool with them. Uh, but I apologize that George took so long out of this lecture that we're now running behind, and I blamed George. I said, you know, he's just so interesting, and no one's really written a book on him or anything. I think I could better summarize him if someone had written something on him that I could kind of digest and kind of, you know, put him in this little right. interpreted box that I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had him sort of loosely in the Mexican-American generation and didn't really think much beyond that. And then I had this student, uh, uh, I s- Al- Alonso Melendez. I remember his name from all these years ago. I don't know where he is. Uh, he took more classes with me, but that was like, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, too. So I have no idea where he is, but I remember his name, Melendez. Um, he raised his hand as everyone's like leading, and you can hear the, the noise from students get out and getting out of their desks and, and sort of reaching for the door and opening it. And he asked this question as people were leaving. Well, if this guy is so important, and and if no one's really done anything on him, why don't you? If you know this much about right. him, why don't you do it? Mm-hmm. And I remember it just stunned me. You know, in, in the sort of I don't know, it's metaphorically, like Greek Greek metaphor, when you're hit by the thunderbolt, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, whatever metaphor you want to use, hit by the thunderbolt, the lightning bolt coming on, which I think is a much more modern kind of uh, 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 image. But the light coming on, the lightning bolt hitting, whatever it was, it hit me. And I remember I stammered. I, I was floored. I, I like... I was speaking, but it wasn't, I don't even remember what I was saying, because inside, you know, in my head, the sparks were just going off, like, yes, 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 do it, yes, great idea, Mm -hmm. do it. I I haven't even gotten the proposal off the ground from the dissertation, and I've got more archival work to do. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not even close to being done with the first book, and this student's undergraduate freshman students innocent question just it it floored me with the possibility and then I kind of thought about it ruminated on it chewed on it for the next two or three years uh, and then when I was interviewing for the job at A&M this was in the spring of 2001 um, I actually had another book project that I was going to write and because and, I felt it was closer to being done. And yeah, I was thinking very practical. Right. Uh, just mm-hmm. do the thing that's easier to do. That's how you get ahead. Not good reasons. <laughs> but that's, that's what I was thinking. And, and in the interview, they 
at the interview dinner, I was asked, well, what, what's your next book project? I didn't realize at the time, I had no idea, that at A&M, you need to publish something off of the second project and have the book to get tenure. Wow. Mm-hmm. Or have a grant or something. You need something demonstrable off the second project. I had no idea. So they're asking me this very important question, and I'm not really attaching the meaning to it that that they're attaching to it. It's meaningful for them. I don't know why they're even asking me, but I thought, well, maybe they're just curious. So I say, oh, I've got this project, and I kind of look around, and eh, no one seems terribly excited about it. And then I said, and there's this um, George Isanche's biography that I'd like to write someday. And that got a lot more excitement because these, hmm. these people were familiar with the name. Mm-hmm. And, and I kind of backwards in my interview dinner kind of committed to it as a second project, wow. thinking no one would remember anything right, about right. this. And then I get to A&M, and then they explain the tenure process to me. Maybe they did, and I just didn't get it during the interview. Maybe uh-huh. I was just so happy to get the job right. that I said yes. But they explained it to me, and then I'm like, oh, um, I'm, I'm committed to this, and I've never written a biography, and I don't think I'm mature enough mm-hmm. to write a biography, but I've committed to it, and I know how he fits from getting further along in this first book. I know exactly how he fits. He's an educator. He's an educational thinker. He's mm-hmm. a reformer. Mm-hmm. He dabbles in activism, and I can write this thing in two or three years. No problem. Uh, that was in 2001, 2002. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, maybe I'll give myself more time. Maybe I'll give myself three or four or five more years. Either way, this thing's going to come out in 20, 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. maybe 2010, worst case scenario. No problem. Uh, and then, m- man. <laughs> and then I got in, like, not just skipping around through the Sanchez papers, like looking for little things that I know apply to the first book. Mm-hmm. When I start systematically examining the Sanchez papers and turning over every box and, mm-hmm. and, and every file, practically, I realized after about two summers of research that this guy, he's a lot more complicated than I thought he was. Right. And I don't know what I'm going to say because I don't know how to make sense of his immigration stance. Right, right. I don't know how to make sense of his problem with the great society. Mm-hmm. Seems like he would be for it, right? I don't, I don't understand his problem with these mechanisms for desegregation and compensatory education when he claims he's an integrationist. I didn't understand right. the tensions between those things. And it took me many years of reading, thinking, and working out a lot of these ideas in sort of tentative form through articles and, and uh, essays. The Journal of Southern History article that you talked about uh, uh, earlier uh, is one, the Western Historical Quarterly article, uh, Teacher's College Record article. Mm-hmm. All those things in, I guess it was 06, 09, and 2012, they were all ways for me to kind of figure out something that when I began the project, I had no idea how I was going to handle whiteness, uh, the immigration uh, debacle in right. the 1950s, right. uh, uh, the, the tension between desegregation 
and integration and, and the fact that they're not the same thing. And there's a lot of fruitful opportunity to explore that. And I did that through article form, and then I sort of pulled it back uh, after 2012, or really 2011. I pulled it back, and I just concentrated, because I felt at that point I was ready. And most of the book got written in 2011 and 2012, and the stuff that was written before then uh, in 2008, 2009, a little bit in 2010, ended up getting significantly rewritten and uh, uh, redistributed through the manuscript. So Mm -hmm. really, 10, 11, and 12 are probably the big years in terms of uh, writing. I got the book to Yale uh, in 2012, and it's been in the sort of resubmission, revision, and copy editing process ever since December of 2014. Mm -hmm. It came out. So that was long-winded. Wow. Uh, no, what you, but you started to, to get at what my next thought was, my, my, my next question was. Uh, you, you mentioned how, you, like most academics on pursuing the, the you know, standard tenure track, our first production is a historical monograph, right? A very narrowly right. focused piece of historical research. Um, and then you make this jump in your second project to do biography, which is very unusual. Definitely not, at least from my understanding. Uh, note, right? I am, I am not, you know, in that tenure track position yet. But for, at least from what I can understand and what I've seen, it's it's unusual that a biography becomes a, a second project particularly one that gets one tenure, um, you know, for, for academics. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your experiences with the, the differences of publishing a biography uh, and a, the standard historical monograph that, that typically is what, you know, academic historians uh, produce. You know, what, are, what were some of the challenges you've bumped into? I think you started to hint at some of those already, how to uh, conceptualize uh, George I. Sanchez with all of his complexity within perhaps those nice little categories and boxes that that historians like to uh, you know create to help us understand and narrate the past uh, but can you, you talk to that a little bit yeah sure absolutely it's uh um yeah it it, it is somewhat uh different it really is um uh i don't know a lot of my colleagues who have who have gone into biography i think Historians are always fascinated by biography. Mm-hmm. We also know that within the historical profession, look, let's face it, um, not everyone regards biography as, as oh, intellectually as valuable, mm-hmm. as uh, a more analytically organized and focused Manuscript, which is not to say that biographies can't be analytical right. or intellectually engaged. I mean, the whole point of mine was that uh, I was going to try to write a monograph about the Mexican-American generation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Mexican-American leadership at mid-20th century through this biographical vehicle. Right. So, so for me, right. the, the, the biography was always sort of the vehicle to get at these other issues. Mm-hmm. I I think I, I, and I, and I've talked about this before, I, I know I've said this in the book, uh, in the uh, preface or the introduction, my, my goal was to tell the story of the Mexican-American generation, or to tell the story of the 20th century Chicano experience through the life of one person, right. knowing that you're mm-hmm. going to miss out a lot, 
Mm-hmm. There's a lot of missing stuff there that, that one life can't possibly cover, or maybe that my, my historical imagination can't really conceive of, uh, and I acknowledge those limitations. But within those limitations, uh, the goal was always to, to write up a biography that was more than a biography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's how I sold it. Uh, uh, I think I got a lot of positive reception from uh, Chicano scholars mm-hmm. uh, who were the most, in fact, the biggest cheerleading I've gotten are from scholars from around the country who over the years, they may not know me, they may have very little connection to me, but they know I'm working on George Sanchez, so when we meet at a conference or we see each other a library or archives or something, uh, the first question I've gotten for years is, so when's the book coming out? How's the book going? <laughs> right. Are you doing okay? I mean, is it going to come out? Why mm-hmm. isn't it out yet? <laughs> that was more the, the comment in, in, in 2012, 2013. Uh, and I had to keep saying it's, it's in the works, it's coming, it's coming. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I was fortunate that in my academic department, my colleagues um, had always regarded this kind of biography as as a valuable thing to do and a necessary contribution. Um, you know, when you switch to biography, it's hard sometimes to translate that uh, in front of other types of audiences like uh, granting agencies, for mm. example. Because, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, a lot of people who aren't necessarily historians, who, who aren't aware of what a biography can do intellectually and analytically uh, might just think, oh, it's just a biography. It's sort of one more right. one more brick in the great man or woman mm-hmm, mm-hmm. theme of history that we're all taught to, you know, react against. Right. Right. Right, and I've even had some 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 historians who've sort of given me that side look, like really biography, like you know, should shouldn't you write another education book? But for the most part, the reception has been very positive, and I I think one of the reasons why the book took a little while, uh, one, life got in the way, and, and, and in a wonderful sort of way, I got to experience a lot of different things that were cool. I have a family now, which I didn't have when I started the biographical research. Uh, uh, I did a little departmental administration and some other uh, uh, service activities that I wouldn't take back. They're, they're important experiences and uh, detract, though they might, from the book. But, you know, one of the problems that I had in this, I think I alluded to it earlier, is that it was hard for me to wrap my arms around Sanchez and to relate the personal life into a broader beat and to connect it to broader movements and themes, especially since when, when the, the subject, when he's alive, and one fortunate thing about Sanchez is that he constantly connected himself in his letters, uh, in his communications, two broader themes. That helped me a lot. Mm-hmm. But even then, sort of seeing the, the, the forest for the trees, so to speak, um, conceptually, that, that was a hard thing for me to do. And I, um, even if I had a little more time, even even if, if 
if I didn't have quite so much on my plate at, at mid-decade, I think I still would have struggled conceptually with the book. I just wasn't ready to write it. It mm-hmm. just took a long time. And I think that's one of the things about biography that no one really told me about is how hard it could be to wrap your arms around one life mm-hmm. and to put it in a perspective that is accurate and that's honest and that's unflinching about all those things that you know we have to be honest about as historians, but at the same time um, that that connects it to things that other people are interested in in a way that forces people or, or, or convinces people to realize that this life is important in my work, right. even though, for example, I'm doing work on Mexican-American generation leadership in Orange County, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, this book can't be important, too, for these themes that maybe I will find in my work or Certainly. someone who's working mm-hmm. on the Midwest. So I never knew how hard intellectually writing a biography could be. Uh, I think there are some biographies that are pretty easy. They're very, hey, geographic. Mm-hmm. Right? They're very mm-hmm. easy. No, it's, it's not that different from A Saint's Life. Right. <laughs> uh, if you've ever read that stuff. Or some biographies are hit pieces. It's just hypercritical stuff about everything that this person should have done and don't you know that these books that lionize this person are all wrong and I'm going to be tough and take a, a solely critical perspective. And I don't know. I, I think I tried to write beyond that thumbs up, thumbs down, good, bad kind of sensibility when mm-hmm. I was uh, conceiving of the project. Uh, for me, the most important thing was connecting this life to this wider body right. of concern and interest. You know, and that certainly comes across in the book, and that's that's one thing that I really appreciated about it, because it's it's something that as I've become trained as, a, as an academic, I started to shy away from biography, and then yet more recently have started to come back to it, and luckily finding good ones like this, seeing how it, it, it can be written in a way, how a biography that is can be written in a way that, that does draw a lot of conte- um, you know, contextual comparisons and, and lessons from the time. And, and that's what this, this does. And, and oftentimes, I mean, I'll say this, while reading this, you do such a, a, a great job of weaving in the literature surrounding this generation and contextualizing them. And it's all through, you know, kind of this, this lens of George Sanchez. But sometimes you forget, uh, at least I did, that, that this was a biography about one person because I'm, I was learning so much more about the people that uh, Sanchez was in um, connection and constant contact with, whether it was, uh, you know, Castaneda or some of the other LULAC and EGIF members and, and, and leaders and activists, you know. So uh, just, you know, a, a, you know, a, a commendation there that, that I think what your goal was, you can, I could tell that that was your goal. And, and I think you, you met it to a large extent because this, this book does have much broader application and meaning beyond just learning who George Sanchez was personally. Well, thank you. Thank you, DJ. It's, 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 it's gratifying to hear that. Uh, I, I hope in, in, in some small way, uh, others might, might think the same way too. Uh, I realize that 
that uh, not everyone is is going to necessarily see this life as especially instructive for the work that they're doing. They mm-hmm. might actually see this life as somewhat novel and mm-hmm. maybe a foil mm-hmm. to argue against their arguments, whether it be over immigration, over the whiteness issue, right, over right. Uh, civil rights, over the generational uh, theme. But um, there was a constant struggle. Uh, I cut a lot from this manuscript uh, uh, when, it, when I originally uh, submitted it. Um, I cut a lot. I, I had a word limit, and I, I, I got to give Yale uh, University Press and Laura DeVoulis, my editor there, a lot of credit for this. Uh, they, they really pulled me back from putting so much of all that other stuff that, hey, you know, it's been three or four pages in this chapter, and we've, we haven't had any mention of George. Where is he? Right. Oh, that's right. I have to go back. <laughs> I have to find a way to tell this stuff in a more concise manner. Uh, I have to be more comfortable with alluding to things that maybe are minor without having to just spell it out in a very methodical, plotting kind of way. And that's the way we're all taught to write, right? When we write dissertations. Right, right. You, you prove your point, and you prove it any number of ways, and you write what you have, and you throw everything at it. Um, and one of the tricks to this was, and, and it took me a while in the editing, was cutting it back and, and, and figuring, trying to figure, let's not lose the life in all this. And of course, there were other issues, too. There were aspects of Sanchez's life that, as an academic, I found fascinating. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. fascinating. There was a, uh, there was a, there was a tenure case <laughs> in the, right after World War II, mm-hmm. a tenure dispute that he was involved with. He was, he was in the minority. He voted against someone for tenure, and the wow. rest of the department voted for someone, uh, but they waited until he left the room until they <laughs> had those votes. <laughs> and, that, and, and, you know, thus begins the protest, which mm-hmm. reaches all the way to the presidential level, and you've got scholars bickering and calling one another names and being really ugly to one another and, you know, talking about their honor and their dignity, and someone's talking about their honor and dignity and how it's been impugned by the motives of this other person. And, and he's in the thick of this, and... and I had all this in a chapter, and and at one point, uh, uh, after some sage advice from the editor, I realized i got to let this go. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I find Mm -hmm. it fascinating. It's interesting, and he doesn't come off in the best light at all, but I've got to let it go. I've got to let it go, because at the end, I can't prove what the motivation is, Mm -hmm. where this anger is coming from. I, I have my suspicions, but... If it doesn't directly relate to one of these themes that I'm talking about or one of the central themes that are driving his life at this point, if I can't show that, then it's extraneous. And and I was like, but I'm being critical. I I was very worried about being too um, enthusiastic. Right. But I'm being critical. It kind of shows them in a more negative way. I was like, no, but it just... It's an outlier. It doesn't really tell you much of anything. It's just, it's just this dispute, and how does it connect to the theme? So my editor uh, uh, at, at Yale, Laura DeVoulis, wonderful editor, she was really great at forcing me to rethink about what I was 
what I had already written and to think about ways to streamline it and to not lose the thread. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I always did it as well as I should. You know, like 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 all authors, I look at what I've written, and even if it was recent, uh, maybe especially if it was recent, I look at it and I think, ugh, why did I write that? Gotcha. Right. Um, right. <laughs> why didn't I tell that story? So, uh, so yeah, it's it's a little bit of agony when when sort of looking back at the book and thinking about if only I had one more one more chop, right? To uh, to edit it. Right. But I try not to. I try not to think about it that much. So, <laughs> um, uh, which, which is an odd sort of thing because this, this is the point in time when I'm asked to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Like, the book's out now. So now, now you talk about it. And, you know, now I keep thinking about the next project and the project after that. Um, but, but no, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I think uh, editing really helped me uh, with that, and I, I can't claim complete credit for that. That's mm-hmm. a lot of that's Yale and Laura uh, just making sure that I was grounded, uh, and, and I'm not even sure I pull it off in all places mm-hmm. as I indicated before. Uh, but it, but it's good to know that you 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 felt that it, it did at least a little bit of both. Certainly, you know, and you mentioned earlier the. Kind of um, the the conundrum, so to speak, that that you had you were forced to deal with in looking into Sanchez, and particularly as him as a lens to examine the Mexican American generation. Those typically being their seemingly uh, assimilationist politics, their this attachment, so called attachment to whiteness, things like that. And I want to get into some of those issues, sure. which you start to delve into um, towards the end of the first part of the book, I think, and and, and definitely in the, in the middle part, the second part. And so uh, the first place I wanted to go uh, is in the direction of th- this kind of transnational perspective that Sanchez had, because previous scholarship on the Mexican-American generation has primarily depicted this group as one that was so focused on assimilating into the American middle class, right, that they were disinterested or disconnected from the culture and politics of Mexico and Latin America uh, in general. And so uh, if you could spend, you know, maybe a few minutes talking about in what ways did George Sanchez exemplify actually the opposite, that is, those of the Mexican-American generation that had more of a transnational perspective, were involved and uh, interested in culture and politics in not just Mexico, but Latin America in general. And saw, so they were able to recognize that connection between themselves and their pursuit of social justice with these broader, um, you know, both a broader uh, transnational population of co-ethnics, but also similar issues being, being faced, at least politically, geopolitically. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny because it, 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 from the very beginning, I, I I essentially argue that when it comes to the generational scheme, that the interpretive scheme that that we use in Chicano history, um, I'm with it. I mean, I I I, I work from within it, and uh, I adopt it, uh, not in in my own sort of eclectic way, in a way that, that, that works for Sanchez. Obviously, it's being driven, this work, by the biography and by the, the primary uh, research, not necessarily by any pre-existing theory. But at the end of the day, I decide that there is a there there to this generational way of thinking about Chicano history. And having said that, one of the contributions that I was very conscious about making is that 
I felt that that easy categorical way of implying that the Mexican American generation was provincial, that they were narrow, they were so focused on U.S. citizenship that they they they, they couldn't see their own transnationalism or really fully appreciate it, which is mm-hmm. a very condescending kind of argument. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just felt that that was wrong on so many levels. Mm-hmm. And I thought that before I did the work on Sanchez. And then the work on Sanchez, it, it, it just, his experiences in Mexico, where he's, he really sees himself, I mean, he's not a, uh, he has his touristy moments, mm-hmm. uh, usually when he's writing to white friends in the United States. And it's, you always have to consider the audience. Uh, but there are an awful lot of letters also where he's, He's Mexicano. He's Mexicano, and it's the post-revolutionary period, and the country is still fervently revolutionary and institutionalizing the revolution, along with pre, through education, the socialistic education, which he writes about extensively. Uh, and, and he sees himself consciously, in fact, the granting agencies that hired him, uh, from GEB to Rosenwald, particularly Rosenwald, they're very conscious about trying to bring that mode of thinking about revolutionary education. How can we teach engaged, civic-minded students and make them more engaged and civic-minded through the public schools? Uh, how can we advance social justice? And this, this ties into the social reconstructionism uh, of the progressive education movement uh, to the United States. Take Mexican revolutionary socialistic education, transplant it to the American Southwest in New mm-hmm. Mexico, in Texas, transplant it to Alabama and Georgia and Tennessee for African Americans. And Sanchez and these granting agencies very much, uh, that was a live concern for them. And it's something that obviously with World War II and the reemergence, or reemergence, but the stark emphasis of U.S. citizenship and nationalism, what with the war uh, uh, ambiance, we as scholars have perhaps forgotten those intercultural, mm-hmm. uh, uh, transnational moments throughout the 1920s, throughout the 1930s that are there, and they're not made up. And it's not scholars sort of reading back into this. If you read Sanchez's letters uh, back and forth when he was in Mexico, even when he was out of Mexico, he, he uh, he's clearly thinking of himself as in this pan-Latino light. Mm-hmm. It's very important to Latinos in the United States, and he's constantly making that dual connection: Latin Americanism and good neighborism abroad equals good neighborism and pro-Latin Americanism at home. Uh, right. And it's not, he's not the only one making that argument either. Now, it's not terribly well received by the State Department, mm-hmm. by uh, governing authorities in the United States, and that's in the liberal uh, role of administration. It's not being perceived well at all in those communities or in those governing agencies. Uh, but it's there, and I wanted to really bring that out. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, I did. I did not realize that um, uh, I, I wasn't familiar with Ruben Flores' work, uh, which has also just come out uh, uh, last year, last summer. In fact, his book from um, I think it's uh, uh, Penn, 
uh, on uh, uh, Sanchez and other uh, southwestern figures and their connections to revolutionary Mexico uh, intellectually and in terms of policy and especially in terms of education and notions of human and civil rights. Hmm. Uh, uh, I, I wish, yeah, I wish, uh, I wish my book had come out a, a couple years earlier, so I could have <laughs> perhaps articulated what I tried to articulate uh, in those chapters uh, a little bit better. But that's a constant thing for me, and I find, and I dealt with this in the immigration chapter, yes. that mm-hmm. Sanchez's connection uh, 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 to immigrant peoples from Mexico, from Central and South America. Uh, were far more nuanced than a simplistic reading of the Mexican-American generation would indicate. By re- and by that, I mean reading uh, uh, reading about Felix Tijerina mm-hmm. or, or uh, 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 yeah, uh, a simple reading of LULAC leaders uh, a narrow reading of LULAC leaders from mm-hmm. the 40s and the 50s might indicate to one that, oh, well, this is a generation that's anti-black, and this is a generation right. that's anti-Mexican, uh, and they're ashamed of their citizenship, and they're, they're horrible assimilationists who don't appreciate anything about their culture. But that misses out on everything that's happening uh, underneath. In right. fact, I, I feel as if we've, as scholars we're beginning to perhaps appreciate that even though this generation does hang together cohesively and that's that generational theme, that scheme works, that interpretive scheme, uh, there is a lot more nuance. It's not quite so black and white. Mm-hmm. It's not so stark. You're, you're pro-American or you're not pro-American. Right. It's just not like that. Mm-hmm. You have these actors who are constantly looking to negotiate uh, 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 with different kinds of entities, whether it be the United States government and the Mexican government, and playing both governments off on one another in order to try to leverage better positionality for Mexican Americans at home. You know, that's that's a game that Sanchez played throughout World War II, right? right. Uh, and he was not appreciated. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the U.S. State Department or by other authorities for it. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's hey, the State Department spied on him. <laughs> they 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 were constantly worried about his and M.C. Gonzalez's activity on behalf of Lulac. The State Department considered Lulac a rabble-rousing, radical communist organization. Right, right. That was right. in forty-two and forty-three, and that's Lulac. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know. So right. I think that's it's the, the simplistic way of this this generation is good bad Lulac is right. good bad uh, Lulac is assimilationist or it's not uh, that simplistic way of characterizing these complicated uh, subjects and phenomena uh, I think that's going I think that's falling away I think we're coming to a more realistic. Uh, assessment and appreciation of all of these subjects, including internationalism in the Mexican-American generation. Right. And there's still resistance to that. Yes. I mean, uh-huh. for some scholars, if it's not Chicanismo mm-hmm. of a la 1967, 68, 69, it's not really truly international. And right. I just right. feel that's wrong. 
in, in right. any number of ways. And I got static on this when I presented at the Western um, uh, not long ago. Mm-hmm. I, think it was, I think it was last fall. So this argument is still being debated, and I hope that that this book will be one more uh, one more sort of uh, data point, sort of pushing the field to appreciate the more nuanced uh, transnationalism of uh, all of these generations, but mm-hmm. especially the Mexican American generation. Definitely, and you know, in addition to this sense of you know internationalism or transnationalism that existed among some in this generation, I think the, the two other issues that speak volumes to the complexity of this generation and, and the difficulty of putting them into this either or um, you know that is conservative or um, militant type of categorization uh, is their stance on. Uh, immigration and their stance on segregation, right? And particularly, so in segregation, we're looking, you know, particularly have a chapter on uh, efforts to desegregate education. And then in regards to immigration, it's primarily this anti-immigration uh, or restrictionist stance that um, many of the leaders of the uh, mixed American generation and their organizations actually advocated for. And so those two, uh, those two stances are, are seemingly polar opposites, right? You, on one side, you have restrictionism, which is, which seems in this, in light of this existing sense of internationalism and, and sort of pan ethic solidarity to some extent. I'm not going to go too far on that, but that, you know, there is some sense that uh, through many of this generation that, that they were connected across the border, right? Either to family members or other similar interests. And then yet, it, for those that were primarily active during this period, uh, a number of their organizations took an anti-immigration stance uh, and then seemingly later on, or not not even later on, at the same time, though were challenging in a very militant way the de facto segregation of their children in schools, of themselves and uh, their communities in the use of um, public spaces, swimming pools, you name it, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about you know, th- those two seemingly incongruent positions, right? And- absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, um, uh, I'll, I'll start with, um, um, uh, well, in a way, they're both meant to be taken together. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I separate them in different chapters, but, but if, uh, if you notice, uh, when Sanchez speaks in his voice in the immigration chapter, uh, the restriction chapter. Anytime he's talking about immigration or restriction, uh, sometimes it's nuanced, sometimes it's, a li- it's not as nuanced, sometimes mm-hmm. it's quite flat. Uh, but civil rights is right there. He refuses to talk about the immigration issue without some connection to, oh, by the way, this is central to Mexican American civil rights. Right. We have to protect. Uh, if you, if Mexican American citizenship, which is necessary for civil rights, means anything, mm-hmm. uh, we we must talk about citizenship and uh, restricting immigration and et cetera, et cetera. And the link that he always made with the immigration argument was that, uh, and it wasn't immigrants. It wasn't immigrants per se, it was always undocumented immigration. Uh, mm-hmm. He would have used the word illegal, 
Uh, he used various iterations of wetback or mojado. I, 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 I generally don't use any of those terms right. except for undocumented, but they are in his language, and mm-hmm. he does use those terms. Uh, we would consider them very offensive today, right. Uh, uh, rightly so. But he never separated those issues from essentially creating a kind of institutionalized and racialized wage exploitation that affected Mexican-Americans as much as it affected undocumented immigrants Mm -hmm. because it created a context in high immigration areas where a Mexican was a Mexican was a Mexican and there was no protection and that law enforcement authorities abused people on that racialized basis, that schools segregated people on that racialized basis. And misguided as it was, and I and I do hold in in that uh, eighth chapter on immigration, right. that this is George I. Sanchez's Achilles' heel. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's if there's one, if you're going to criticize him for one thing or, or talk about the one most wrong thing, certainly today, that uh, he ever did or was engaged in in terms of politics one would have to argue that it's the immigration issue because it was divisive within the Mexican-American community right. and it didn't do anything to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. Essentially, growers got what they wanted. They, mm-hmm. got an, they got a completely unregulated flow of undocumented immigrant workers without any sorts of protection. Right. Through the Bracero program, any, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, in Texas, since Texas was excluded right. initially from mm-hmm. Bracero, mm-hmm. it was just outright undocumented immigration that wasn't policed at mm-hmm. the border. Later will become the Bracero program, but even then, as scholars have noted, the Bracero program was institutionalized in a way that worked hand-in-hand hand with INS right. uh, and with deportation and with uh, rounding up undocumented immigrants and deporting them when they were no longer necessary or funneling them uh, through right. the Bracero program right. Uh, when they were needed. Mm-hmm. And it's a form of wage control and it's a form of uh, it's a form of exploitation. And it's the exploitation that I think got Sanchez so angry and so up in arms. He tries many times to try to differentiate between uh, what he would have called legal and illegal immigration, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I guess what we would call fully documented and undocumented or imperfectly documented immigration. <laughs> he, he tried very, and in fact, he's very pro-citizenship. He, he wants to redesign yes, the right, test right. that Mexican immigrants take to allow more Mexican immigrants to become American citizens mm-hmm. because they deserve it. They've lived here. They've already paid taxes. They have children who are citizens, or they have children who would be wonderful citizens. Why not? Right. Uh, so it, it was a matter of exploitation right. uh, uh, for him, and that exploitation was completely connected to civil rights, the kind of exploitation that economic interests, he would have called them ro- economic royalty uh, in the Southwest, the kind of exploitation that they essentially made their money off of uh, also bled into this notion that Mexican-Americans who are citizens and who are immigrants who can't be deported must nevertheless be kept in a separate part of town, mm-hmm. must nevertheless 
be segregated in schools must nevertheless be segregated even in jury pools. So it's what uh, he never saw this connection between the two of them. He saw them as intimately connected because at the end of the day, it was about exploiting people as a people, as a group. Uh, uh, it's denying rights and basic human protections to everyone. And for the record, and, and, and I don't, I don't know if you, if you uh, recall this in the book, uh, but, but if anyone out there is wondering about it, he does complain to the United Nations mm-hmm. about immigration in South Texas and throughout the Southwest, Southern California as well. Right. He feels it's a crime. That mm-hmm. The UN needs to look into this. This is a violation of all kinds of national sovereignties by essentially economic exploiters, by, by people who are, by capitalists who are so unregulated that they could get away with murder if they so chose, and that vested interest, these vested interests would never be opposed uh, because they were too politically entrenched by the politicians in Washington, D.C. He was tremendously disappointed uh, that, that Truman uh, essentially subsidized a low farm labor income by reauthorizing Bracero, but with far less protections. Uh, he, he really was. Uh, he was completely uh, disappointed by Truman. He felt that Truman, as a liberal Democrat, would hold Mexican-American, particularly since Truman was very uh, pro-Mexican-American in the Felix Longoria affair, mm-hmm. uh, 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 right at about that time in 1949. Very disappointed that that happened. Um, and this bled into his work on civil rights. Uh, for Sanchez, uh, uh, integration was the thing that he desired, and it's no, it's no uh, coincidence right. that that integration appears in the title of the book, "A mm-hmm. Long Fight for Mexican American Integration," uh, and that's very subconsciously done because I use Sanchez as an integrationist, right? Uh, above all, it's actually more important to what he's doing than the immigration issue, per se, mm-hmm. than any other issue, per se. He believes that his people need to sit as full members at the American table, at, at the banquet that is the United States, to right. sit as full members at the table and participate fully without any distinctions or without any sense of shame or dishonor in their background. He feels that... that uh, that Chicano's background is historical background is wonderful and that it makes the nation stronger and that the nation needs Chicanos and even if it doesn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of this, he, he's engaged in desegregation battles. He's even from the 1930s and forties, he's opposing things like Spanish language PCAs mm-hmm. like in San Antonio and other places because they're not integrated. Mm-hmm. So, Flash forward, uh, he's busy fighting uh, segregation through desegregation. Uh, initially in Texas, there's a form of tokenism that develops, but it's very, very limited. And right. It doesn't really apply to the lower grades. And ultimately, when Mexican Americans are being pushed out of school in the third and fourth grade anyway, uh, it doesn't matter that high schools are relatively uh, more integrated 
because if most of the Chicano population is dropping out before then, it becomes sort of a moot point. Uh, by the 1960s, uh, as the Great Society moved forward and you start having all kinds of scholars coming up with Title VII and Title III uh, 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 projects specifically designed to help Mexican-American students, to help them, and, you know, I'm putting air quotes in this, overcome their language handicap, mm -hmm. which, mm -hmm. by which they meant Sanchez, or by which they meant Spanish, which Sanchez never regarded as a handicap, right. or special classes for migrant students so mm -hmm. they could get more out of school during the time of year that they're in the school district to which they belong. Mm -hmm. uh, and Sanchez consistently opposed these types of federal programs. Mm -hmm. Even though they, they hired Chicano administrators, teachers, even though this money was funneled into starving, poor Mexican-American school districts, right? Even though you have local Mexican-Americans who are basically writing and saying, uh, Profe, what, what's up? I mean, we, we need this money here in Edinburgh or McAllen or wherever. We need this money. This is great federal money. Finally, someone is giving us money to educate our kids after the local people wouldn't tax a dime uh, uh, for us. They wouldn't give us anything. We're finally getting this money, and now you oppose the program. Right. It's for us. It's going to be administered by us. What's your beef? And his beef was always because they're taking your kids because of their last names, mm -hmm. and because of the language they speak, really because their last names and they look different. They're taking your kids and they're putting them back in segregated schools. Right, right. Only now they're giving you money and they're telling you you're running it and you should be happy about it and quit complaining. Right, right. You know? And and that's that's a hard that's a hard one to crack. That one took me a long time to think about that tension. For for example, between integration and bilingual education. George I. Sanchez loved bilingual education. He had graduate students in the nineteen fifties and sixties who wrote dissertations on the history of bilingual education and the and the policy ramifications of it. What he loved, actually, was what we would now call two-way or dual language, mm -hmm. bilingual instruction, right. where you integrate 50-50 <laughs> uh, a classroom of kids, 50% monolingual English right. speakers, 50% right. monolingual Spanish speakers. You mix them together, and they learn from one another over a series of years. Right. The English speakers learn Spanish, the Spanish speakers learn English, and neither language is dehumanized, or dehumanized isn't the right word, but languages, neither language is stigmatized. Right, right. Uh, I don't think they call that language immersion here in California. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. That's what he favored, and yet what we got in a lot of places, including in Texas, is you got this very, very segregated kind of bodyization of, mm -hmm. you know, what what's essentially uh, uh, the, the sort of um, an English immersion core wrapped with some transitional bilingual education stuff around it, right. which, mm -hmm. in effect, allows segregation to continue. Only now, you're not punishing kids for speaking Spanish, you're letting them do that, but they're still in the same segregated classroom, right. and they don't have to mix with the other kids. That was his objection. Yeah, and those uh, ramifications are still, uh, I think, even being um, 
uh, you know, played out today in that, I mean, I, I my parents got their start in the late 1970s as teachers by teaching in uh, the Colonia in, in Oxnard. And they were speaking to essentially a completely segregated population of, of Mexican children. You know, and this is here, um, you know, 20 plus years after Brown, uh, 30 years essentially after Mendez. And, you know, that issue of segregation is, is still being uh, dealt with, you know. And, uh, and and I bet the school had ESEA federal money and mm-hmm. grants uh, uh, to support it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but in Sanchez's case, well, the federal government, you, the federal government, you declare that racial segregation is illegal, but then you go ahead and allow the same thing under the cover of curricular innovation. Right, 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 right. right. So, you know, we're running... And that's a hard one, because I, I don't completely disagree with the people who wrote in to complain to him. Mm-hmm. Okay, what's, what's your problem with this? This is good for our community. I think they represent a very practical sense that, that in, you know, in, in a situation where the world isn't perfect, sometimes you take half a loaf. You take something that will make things better immediately and maybe build on that instead of trying to insist for a more utopian and perfect world now. And Sanchez is certainly criticized for being unrealistic in his expectations for politics, for, for immigration, for, for desegregation. So in a sense, he's sort of a desegregation or really an integration purist. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, it's at the, at the end of the day, um, he just doesn't want to compromise on right. this issue very much. And he has to compromise about so many things in his life, but he doesn't want to compromise on this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in the 1960s, it's this kind of uncompromising stand that, in a way, it makes for great reading as a historian, but you can see, I mean, I could see as a historian that he was becoming more marginalized and isolated because of it in the 1960s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. And I, you know, there's one other issue that I would uh, like us to discuss. We are super short on time, but I would, I would really be remiss if I didn't have you comment on this, because this is the other, the other controversy within this generation or debate. It's more of a debate, right? Among historians (laughs) is, um, the issue of, of Mexican American identity, right? And how closely that was tied to, um, or attached as some, some scholars are to a claim to whiteness, to, their white European heritage. You just stated that, and you, 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 it's a theme throughout the book. It's very clear that, um, George Sanchez was an, an integrationist at heart. And it wasn't just for, however, Mexican Americans that, that he advocated in the, the numerous organizations he was involved with, with that were actually, uh, you know, at the same table as the ACLU or NAACP or JAC, all these other uh, ethnic organizations that were pursuing civil rights strategies, that he was very much for overturning segregation outright, but that you know his axe to grind was indeed uh, the the struggles that Mexican Americans themselves faced, right? And and so the right. the contextual challenges of the time and of you know him feeling the, the strong need to. Um, build organizations and build institutions and, and get funding to fight for Mexican American rights. It, it seems to have been interpreted later though, by scholars that um, due to the strategy that was implemented by by activists like Sanchez, that 
they, in essence, drew a, a, a starker line between themselves and, say, African-Americans or other so-called non-white races because Mexican-Americans, as, as mentioned, uh, existed in this in-between racial category where they were technically white according to uh, both treaty and, and uh, constitutional law – not constitutional law um, – Supreme Court decision cases. Uh, however, they were never socially really granted that that privilege of full citizenship. So, can you take a couple minutes just to speak to how Sanchez uh, complicates those binary distinctions and, and and simplistic interpretations that Mexican Americans made a so called pact with whiteness, or that's what they were really you know appealing for and. Um, that's how they saw themselves as white rather than non-white and, and thereby drew that distinction between themselves and perhaps a, their co-ethnics across the border. Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, I'll, try to, I'll try to keep it brief. I know we're, we're short on time. But, uh, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, in, in brief, um, the way the whiteness argument has appeared in mostly article form, some book form, uh, through various authors, uh, whether it's a Faustian pact or whether it's uh, however one wants to uh, sort of group uh, readings together. And there are several authors and there are several essays and books that, that sort of go along with this path. And it's essentially the path is that Mexican-Americans chose a racist civil rights strategy in the 1940s and the 1950s that isolated and marginalized them from the African-American civil rights movement. And in point of fact, in, in sort of a, a symbolic way, distance and maybe created, created distance mm-hmm. from themselves and African-Americans and African-American civil rights. This notion that Mexican-Americans uh, did not argue for justice and equality and freedom for all, this notion that Mexican-Americans argued that we want to be called white, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, I find that a incredibly narrow, tortured reading of the existing archival and uh, uh, other evidence at hand. There's simply... You have to want to make that argument to be able to cherry-pick uh, from the evidence to make that argument. Now, let me, let me back up. Uh, I'm, I'm against that argument. I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't see that argument as valid. In fact, I, I argue that George I. Sanchez indicates something else about the Mexican-American generation. George I. Sanchez indicates that the Mexican-American generation had very strategic uh, uh, attitudes on racial identity, which mm-hmm. is to say whatever they believed about themselves in racial identity was often very private. It was very personal. What they claimed about racial identity shifted over time according to their needs as a community. Uh, that at the end of the day, it's not just that the Mexican-American and the African-American civil rights movements travel on parallel paths and don't connect that that much. I argue that there are connections. Uh, uh, I don't argue that the connections are impossible and there may be more out there beyond George S. Sanchez. In fact, I see 
the evidence seems to indicate that there are. Uh, but instead, I would make that all of these civil rights movements uh, are not necessarily working hand in glove with one another, mm-hmm. uh, and that they are responding to specific communities with specific concerns. Right. And it's important also to remember this about the structure of racism. Uh, racism doesn't affect every group equally. This right. is sort of foundational and mm-hmm. essential for critical race theory, right? Racism affects different groups in different ways through different kinds of policies, different kinds of laws and legal precedents, different kinds of understandings of racial identity. Uh, so, backing up a little bit, I concede, I am positive that there are racist Chicanos mm-hmm. out there. Right. In the early 20th century, Certainly. in the middle 20th century, late in the 20th century, today. I am positive that there are racist Chicanos out there. I do not believe, however, that the Mexican-American civil rights movement is inherently right. racist, or more specifically, that it's anti-black, right. that it's anti-African-American, that mm-hmm. it's anti-NAACP. The evidence that I've reached uh, through the study of George I. Sanchez seems to indicate that Mexican-American civil rights figures, their arguments within the courtroom, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about Hernandez v. Texas, mm-hmm. the, uh, 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 the jury trial case mm-hmm. uh, with Gus Garcia, Carlos Cadena, uh, uh, Danda, and of, of course, you know, George I. Sanchez in the background, not at the courtroom, but mm-hmm. kind of writing memos and raising money and, and applying for grants and things like that. Uh, Castaneda asked, uh, uh, excuse me, Cast- I said Castaneda, I meant mm-hmm. Cadena, Carlos mm-hmm. Cadena from San Antonio. So Carlos Cadena asks George for, uh, I need sort of an academic piece explaining who Mexican-Americans are. Mm-hmm. What are right. we racially? Where do we fit? And it's a very nuanced kind of essay about this is sort of the way the nation sees race. Right. This is what we are. This is our mixture of race. But more importantly, this is our culture, and this is where we come from, and these are common themes and commonalities. And it's a very nuanced piece of work, and it's not, it, it doesn't, it's not indicative at all of that more tortured reading right. uh, of the Mexican-American civil rights movement. Uh, so I, I find a lot of nuance, a lot of shifting, a lot of strategicness mm-hmm. with the way Sanchez and other Mexican-American uh, leaders uh, uh, conceived of race. Some, I believe, were... Were, were quite hostile to African Americans and mm-hmm. did not want to see them in, in, in that same vein. Many Mexican American generation leaders I find very sympathetic right. uh, to the NAACP, to Thurgood Marshall, to uh, the Reverend King, to the entire African American civil rights movement. Uh, in fact, and George I. Sanchez offers no easy explanations, so he's clearly very connected to African-American civil rights. Definitely, right. Uh, and he is from a very, very early time. He had worked on African-American education mm-hmm. with the Rosenwald Fund in the 1930s. Right. But, uh, you know, he's also representing Mexican-Americans. And, and, and I think I mentioned this in the book, 
there's no expectation from George I. Sanchez that the NAACP is going to put aside civil right. rights for African Americans exactly. to work on behalf of Mexican Americans. Mm-hmm. Likewise, he doesn't see it as any fault or any flaw that Mexican Americans are going to have their civil rights movement that affects them, particularly when there are all these connections in between. And even in the 1950s, after uh, uh, the case where they initially cooperated, which was uh, the Delgado case, particularly using Delgado in Texas as a means of uh, an NAACP case later, Sanchez and uh, Thurgood Marshall still continue this connection. He still con- participates in the uh, Race Relations Institute uh, uh, in Nashville. Uh, it says he still is connected to African American spirits. In fact, in a later chapter, I talk about how George I. Sanchez is, is pushing the liberal. This is the most liberal you can get in Texas at the time in the late 1950s, Ralph Yarbrough. The great lion liberal of Texas liberalism, right? This is the guy that all lefty liberals in Texas uh, obsess over and, and love and adore and fetishize and all this stuff. He actually was not pro-integration during massive resistance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he, I, he, he was when he was running for those Senate seats in the mid-1950s, right before massive, the, the brunt of massive resistance hit. Uh, he's running for governor, and Sanchez is writing him, pushing him. You've got to take a stance against interposition. You've got to take a stance against these constitutional dodges that segregationists are doing, which affects everyone here. And he made the argument that segregation for African Americans affects all of us. It affects white people. It affects uh, uh, Chicanos. It affects everyone. That you have to oppose this. Mm-hmm. So he's later on in the 1960s. He's clearly uh, he feels that that uh, Mexican Americans are not getting the same level of attention as African Americans are from Lyndon Johnson's White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that's not to say that he's hostile to African Americans right. or you know what he's hostile to is Lyndon Johnson and Lyndon Johnson thinking of race and uh, uh, social programs in this very binary way in which Mexicans can't catch a break. They can't fit in anywhere, which is why you have the EEOC walkout, which Sanchez supports in 1966, Mm -hmm. and later the uh, conference in 1967. So, yeah, yes, this is a fascinating topic. I don't think the book is closed one way or the other on Mm -hmm. it. I think there's... There's room for scholars to write about whiteness as, in a way that maybe sharply uh, disagrees well, with what I've written, but I do think that, and I'm, and I'm convinced of this, that a more nuanced, thorough reading of the Mexican American civil rights movement would really argue against uh, that kind of argument. Right. Well, and there's this whole uh, in recent in the recent decade or so, there's been a whole flowering of scholarship, particularly on the younger half of this generation, right? And particularly looking at cultural, um, uh, you know, evolutions and in, in, uh, cultural politics. I'm thinking of work by you know Anthony Macias and Mac Garcia and uh, Luis Alvarez and whatnot that have you know looked at a, a younger part of this generation, uh, a bit younger, but have also you know seen other areas. Um, 
of intercultural uh, cooperation and and uh, and what is it? You know, hybridity and fluidity. That also complicates this you know, stark dichotomy between Mexican-American racial identification. So I definitely appreciate you speaking to that. And it is a big point. And you, you take on all the big issues in this, this book, which is why I think Sanchez does cut a, a nice figure to provide a lens into many of the – particularly the politics and, and the activism of uh, people in, in, you know, involved that were active in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. So we definitely thank you for your time. And uh, before we sign off, however, I do want to give you a moment just to tell us uh, what it is you're working on now. Oh, sure. Thanks. Uh, and, and, BJ, I really appreciate the conversation. This has been a lot of fun. Thank as you. you know, I can, I can keep talking, man. I can I keep could, going I could too. on. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good we cut it off at some point. We, we do want people to listen to this and not uh, tune out because uh, we're, we're going for, like, I don't know, like Khrushchev levels of, of, of talks. Um, so what am I working on now? Uh, right now I've got copy edits in front of me from... Uh, uh, a manuscript that I've been working on uh, on editing uh, with the University of Texas Press. Uh, uh, it's very exciting. Uh, a couple years ago, we put together what's essentially a New Directions kind of conference or symposium at Texas A&M, New Directions on Chicano Studies, or Chicano History, really. Um, and we turned the conference proceedings, um, and we have some wonderful people who are participating. Uh, oh, uh, really Incredible, incredible scholars. Uh, Luis Alvarez, uh, uh, Sonia Hernandez, uh, Perla Guerrero, Lilia Fernandez, Felipe Lajosa, uh, Michael Olivas from the University of Houston. Just outstanding, an outstanding lineup of scholars who are thinking about these new directions, new themes, new interpretations, new ways of looking at Chicano history. Neat. And it's entitled... Uh, uh, a Promising Problem, uh, The New Chicano History. Uh, it's been accepted by the University of Texas Press. Yay! So <laughs> very excited about that. Uh, and now I'm in the middle of copy edits. In fact, if, Great. Uh, if my editor at UT, uh, Carrie Webb, uh, hears about this, she might give me a call and about this podcast. She might give me a call and ask me why I'm not working on copy <laughs> edits right now because we've got a tight deadline. But yeah, so that's going to come out in 2016. Uh, it's it's really exciting. Um, it's 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 an opportunity for me to kind of go back and explore something that I've done in other spots in my career, which is more explicitly write about historiography mm-hmm. and the way our ideas as historians have developed and maybe contextualize them why and and to kind of talk about the future too because you know what historian doesn't want to talk about the future at the end of the day right, right. we all want to really talk about the future exactly uh, as much as we talk about the past mm-hmm. so that's what i'm working on and it's very exciting and and um yeah yeah it's, it's a great group of I'm just amazed that these wonderful, uh, incredible scholars are letting me edit this. Uh, right. They are so. So it's 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 an incredible honor, and and hopefully it'll come out next year, and 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 we'll have some ideas that we can talk about, and 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 all that. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for mentioning that. I've definitely noted it, and I'm sure many of our listeners are going to be watching for it, and. 
you can guarantee as soon as it comes out, I'll be calling you again so we can <laughs> hopefully talk about that one and maybe we can get a couple others, uh, other contributing offers to talk about it with us as well. Oh, definitely. I think I think you should. I think you should have us all on. In fact, I'll I'll take a back seat. I'll let them talk. They're, they're, they're a lot smarter than I am. They're a lot more articulate than I am too, uh, and they probably can say more uh, in less time than I have. I'm, I'm showing that we might have gone a little long, so I apologize for talking too much. But, That's uh, fine. It's, it's been, been a lot of fun, man. I agree. I agree. Thank you for your time, Carlos. I definitely encourage our listeners to uh, get the book, uh, read George I. Sanchez, and I'm going to do the full title again, The Long Fight for Mexican-American Integration. Carlos Blanton, again, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot, DJ. Thanks again for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. This is David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and I hope you've enjoyed my conversation today with Carlos Kevin Blanton, author of the new biography, George I. Sanchez, A Long Fight for Mexican-American Integration, published by Yale University Press in 2014. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you may do so by liking or commenting on our page on Facebook, or by sending us an email at newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.